0: Want to discover leading strategies, share experiences, and connect with fellow consultancy leaders from companies like EY, PwC, or Porsche Consulting? Then join us in Munich for the Leaders in Consulting Conference on the 27th of June, a one-day event exclusively for consultancy leaders like you. Places are limited, so head to leadersinconsulting.com to claim your ticket now. That's as word.com. See you there.
1: So by gathering together with my peers and hearing what they're doing, I can I can benchmark what I'm doing and locate myself in the universe of my peers and realize, okay, I'm safe. I can keep doing what I'm doing here. Uh, but they they're eager to do it. It's using, you're using the power of the attraction of a peer group. You're harnessing that power for your desire to drive business development. It's a two step process, not a one step process. I'm not asking you for a sale. I'm using the power of peer groups to create a relationship after which then I can ask for a sale over time. Do you want to grow your business and learn best practices from other leaders in consulting? Then this is the place for you. Welcome to the Leaders in Consulting show. This episode is powered by Sawoo, the company that can help you drive thought leadership, hiring and sales for your consultancy via LinkedIn. Check them out on sawoo.io, S-A-W-O-O.io.
0: Yeah, our guest today is Tom McMacken, CEO of the consultancy Profitable Idea Exchange. Uh, In short, P-I-E. Do you say P-I-E or?
1: Pie. Pie, pie. like you say pie. cake and pie. Okay. Yeah, I was exactly. not sure. I
0: thought, hmm, pie would be easier, yeah? So pie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tom, um, welcome to our show. Well, thanks, Tammy, for having me. It's great to be here. Um, maybe before we get started with uh, questions about your
1: company and your profession, wh- where are you living? Where are you situated? You know, I live in Bozeman, Montana, uh, so in the western United States near the northern border near alberta just north of yellowstone park which people have heard oh, of that yeah. must be beautiful there you know it's the mountains it's like the it's a little like the tyrol in uh in western austria yeah i
0: can imagine because i'm coming from the south of germany close to the border to austria so okay. the mountains and the background with our roll up um they're basically um, the mountains that i see when i visit my parents
1: very nice very nice
0: so um tell me about
1: your company. How did you get uh, started with it? You know so this company is about an 80 person consultancy and we used to be the business development unit inside of Arthur Anderson, which of, which at the time was one of the largest was the largest accounting firm in the in the world uh, until it was told to stop doing business after the Enron debacle. Um, so we spun out of of Anderson to begin to do business development assistance and consulting with other professional services firms. And that was uh, 2020, so almost more than 20 years ago.
0: 20 years ago.
1: Nice. And you were the founder, no? Or one of no, the I was founders? not. In fact, uh, I was brought in as a professional manager. And mm-hmm. then I bought out the founder some time ago.
0: Ah, nice. But now you're basically the...
1: The owner and and CEO. Yeah, I mean, our management team owns this company together. I'm the largest shareholder, but we we think of ourselves as a team. Very nice. How big is uh, this leadership team that also owns shares? Um, So it's interesting. The leadership team is five other people, but then we've extended partnership or ownership rights to another six people beyond Mm -hmm. that which I think of as the sort of next generation of leadership. You know, one of the abiding questions in consulting is how do you move from a founder-based company uh, to a next generation of leadership? And part of that has to be a transfer of the economics uh, from the founding team to the next team. If you're piggish about economics as a founder, you'll, you'll quickly incentivize the next generation of talented people to go elsewhere or to start their own firm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's like the picture of, um, on the one hand, some people think um, it is like a a pie. So and if you give away a share of your pie, you have less. But um, you you say it correctly, you give away a share of the pie with the existing size. But if people say the 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 pie will grow bigger, so even though you have less percentage, you will have more in the end. Exactly, exactly. Very good. Uh, What is your company focused on?
1: So we help professional services firms or expert services firms drive their business development. So when I say expert services firms, I mean accounting firms, law firms, uh, large IT integration firms. Think about like Accenture or IBM, the big consultancies, McKinsey, Bain, BCG, um, marketing firms, engineering firms, anybody that sells expertise, not a thing. High end services. We help them drive their business development. Mm-hmm. And what is your personal job at Pi? So that's a great question. Uh, I'm one of the few people at Pi that gets to do anything that they want to do, right? I get to, as the CEO, uh, one of the things I have to do is design my own job description. And that sounds like, oh, wonderful freedom, but it really begs the question what is leadership? Is it useful for me to uh, engage with clients directly and run projects so as to model how to do projects to other more junior consultants? Is it useful for me to do business development? Is it useful for me to write thought leadership? Is it useful for me to get on the road and visit some of our best clients and co-create future service lines? Uh, and At the end of the day, is it useful for me to walk around the office and check in with people? Uh, at the end of the day, I think of my job description as all of those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of things to do.
1: <laughs>
0: um, can you, you already told, told us, um, uh, the, the size of your company. So it's around 80 employees. And I saw at least on LinkedIn that you're recently also growing, um, quite, quite well, correct.
1: Yeah. I mean, the last two years we've been, uh, named one of the what they call the Inc. 5000 in the United States, a, a fast-growing company uh, in the United. So last year we grew 35%.
0: Very nice. Congrats on that one.
1: Yeah, I um, mean, so you you say that, but I, I actually, um, it was too much. Yeah, so
0: it can be too much sometimes, yeah.
1: When you have a people business like consulting, it doesn't scale like software. You can't double the size of the company in the next year. So we've consciously tamped that growth back to 20 or 25 percent this year, because we need to catch up with our systems and our our culture and our training, um, and make sure we keep our eye on quality, so that uh, anyway we don't lose clients in our in our rush to grow. So you Mm -hmm. you know, you say congratulations on 35%. It felt a little like it was out of control and we need to bring it back into control.
0: Yeah, as a founder, I mean I I I feel the same. So either you're growing too slow or you're growing (laughs) too fast. I mean it's never perfect. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. I think perfect is somewhere between 17 and 27%. That's I've been doing this a long time. That's the sweet spot (laughs) right there. (laughs) very good Um,
0: and what geographical markets are you serving
1: you know i would say primarily north america but we do projects in europe latin america and asia um Mm. uh yeah so all over the globe Mm -hmm. i mean like a large client of ours is based in paris another one's based in ireland two are based in the uk uh yeah all over
0: very good. Uh, and Paris, must be. I mean, kudos, eh? Because uh, getting a foot in the door in, in France without probably having someone who is fluent in French, that's not easy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have we have fluency as a capability here. So you have people who also speak
0: French. Mm.
1: Perfect. That's
0: nice. Very good. Yeah. And uh, can you give us a proxy of the size of a, a normal project that you have? However you define size, be it mandates, be it like volume um, and and revenue, whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think about dollars. So $250,000 would be a sort of typical project for us.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good. So let's let's jump into the interesting part because um, we have the same target group. uh, There's a big overlap. And uh, we had a really nice pre-interview already, and I'm really curious in all the points that you see because you see many consultancies, which is our target group for the show. So if we focus on the consultancies, basically, um, I see many consultancies still going after like the the old way of saying a partner has to do everything. Yeah, a partner has to do sales, um, has to acquire customers, has to do projects, has to win employees, has to do everything. Um, So why don't consultancies build their own um, sales unit?
1: So it's a great question. And lots of, I think, consultancies have tried to do that. You know, if you walk into a a phone store, let's say a Nextel or a Verizon store, and you want to buy a phone, the most junior person that you meet in that store is a salesperson. Um, and, And they describe to you, the phones that you could purchase Mm -hmm. and they describe them on features and attributes. They, they say, this has got a, this is, doesn't this camera, this uh, phone has one camera. This phone has three cameras. This phone is uh, got this number of pixels. This phone has got more. This phone comes in silver. This one comes in red. This one is a thousand dollars. This one's $500. A junior person can do that. In professional services firms, expert services firms, junior people have a hard time um, consummating sales with uh, with potential clients because they're not features and attributes to describe. Um, consultancy services are sold on reputation, relationships, and referral, and it takes senior people to describe the stories that apply to a situation. So if you're a potential client and you've got a problem, say you uh, you were just hacked and I'm a cybersecurity expert, it's my 20 or 30 years of experience in dealing with cybersecurity hacks that enables me to diagnose the problem and then to fix it. So mm-hmm. without getting too complicated, uh, economists call that kind of uh, sale a credence sale. Um, And a credence sale is where the person that is uh, doing the work also diagnoses the problem, and it requires an extra level of trust. So I'll give you an example. If I had an old broken-down car, a Datsun B210, and I was driving along and it made this noise, ping, 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 and I took it to the mechanic. The mechanic would diagnose the problem and then fix it. So if they were an unscrupulous mechanic, they might say, you need a valve job, and that's going to cost you $3,500. But if they were a scrupulous mechanic, they might say, "Mm, it's an old engine, put some uh, high grade gasoline in it, and maybe the ping will go away, but you're just going to have to live with it. Um, That requires an extra degree of trust that we don't need to give a junior salesperson selling a phone. And so that's why in consulting, they often talk about grinders, minders, and finders. So the most Mm -hmm. junior people are locked in the basement and uh, we feed them work underneath the door and they work all night long and they're not allowed to talk to clients. And minders have a team of those grinders and they talk to clients. And the most senior people are rainmakers, they're out there diagnosing problems and winning new clients based on their reputation and their experience. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. It's hard to think about selling expert services like you might sell a phone. Um, The good news is that the audience is much smaller. When you're trying to sell a phone, you're broadcasting your message to millions. But when you're selling services, you tend, tend to have a much smaller group of people that you're targeting.
0: So th- that's an interesting point. Huh? Um, how and you see so many consultancies. How do most consultancies uh, think about sales or marketing nowadays? And and why is the the common uh, perception of of sales and marketing wrong? In your point of view.
1: So first, let's be let's be uh, uh, graceful about about what the problem is. Yeah. Most of us that are consultants didn't go to school in sales and marketing. So if I'm an accountant and I work for KPMG, I went to school to become an accountant. And I was a grinder. I did taxes for companies. Then I was a minder and I organized teams of people to do taxes. And then before I'm extended a partnership, they say you need to, as you said before, expand the size of the pie, which means sell more. And 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 for the first time in my life at 35, I'm being asked to sell work, and I don't know how to do it. I've never taken a class in it, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm an HR consultant.
0: Yeah, I've seen it in, in my consultancy career. Where sorry to interrupt, but I see exactly that you 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 get really good at executing. You at some point you manage projects, but uh, most consultancies don't teach you and don't give you the tools or or help to basically become. Uh, so to say, rainmaker or someone who's able to build connections and get in touch with potential clients. And then over time, um, get your first projects.
1: Exactly. So I think, uh, thrust with this problem, given this problem of the need to sell, sell where you haven't been trained in that most consultants rummage around in their general knowledge and they say, Oh, I know how to sell. It's like a sales funnel, isn't it? You, uh, you, you get a bunch of leads and then you pre-qualify the leads to see whether it's a good fit. And then you send them materials and you then you pitch them and they either say yes or no. And out the bottom of this funnel, drip, 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 many leads comes a few new clients. That's the model that they have in their mind. And I don't think that's a good model for consulting. And I'll say why. It presumes, there's an assumption there that there's an infinite number of leads. Um, And in fact, in most consultancies, there are very limited needs. So for example, let's say I used to be the IT director of a law firm, and then I I spin out and I say, I could do IT services for other mid-sized law firms in my geography, the upper Rockies in the United States. And so I, I create a list of all the mid-sized law firms in the upper Rockies, and it numbers 250 firms. So there are 250 CIOs in those firms that I want to serve. Um, I can't just be uh, pouring those leads in the top of the funnel, because what happens when I'm done with those 250? Where do I go? I think a better metaphor, Sammy, is that we're, we have a garden and each one of those 250 relationships is a seed, and we plant those seeds, and we water and nurture and add value and and uh, grow those seeds. And they bear fruit over the course of our career when they're ripe, when they're ready. Most people don't need a cybersecurity expert until they've been hacked. Or until they merge with another firm. And then they go, you know, I've I've known Sammy for so many years now. He's such a smart guy. He's always at the center of the latest changes in law firm cybersecurity. I should call him. And suddenly that fruit is ripe enough to be picked. So I think of that that's the single thing I think that consultants get wrong is they think they're selling a watch or a pen or software where there are an infinite number of leads. In fact, what we're trying to do is get to know all the people in the small cohort that we have a right to serve and then cultivate those relationships over a long period of time.
0: Yeah. And this cohort is much smaller. As you said, it's not like thousands of people. It's usually hundreds, maybe at most a thousand people who are really the champions that can get you into a company and get you, um, as, as a new, new vendor, so to say listed and, um, I I really like what you're saying, because it also resonates on how I think about sales and marketing for these companies. Um, And you mentioned something really, really nicely also, besides um, the the whole notion of you're rather a farmer than than someone who's a sales hunter, who's just pulling in uh, new ones. Uh, Then you're also not a broadcaster, where you just blast out messages to everyone, um, and you had a really nice term. I just forgot it. Um, how did you call it instead of broadcasting?
1: Narrowcasting, ah. right? So, uh, I mean, we know narrowcast. We know that broadcast is inefficient. If we buy television ads at the Super Bowl or the World Cup, it's very expensive, and it goes to everybody. If my, if if, if I'm an accountant and I, I I've done some work for two mining companies in North America, and I've done a nice job for them. And I feel like I have a right to build a mining company uh, uh, niche, if you will, a practice doing accounting for mining companies. So I list all the mining companies in North America, and they they number one hundred and twenty five. And so I think, I need to get to know 125 CFOs of these mining companies. If I put a Super Bowl ad out at $5 million a minute, I, I, I might hit those 125, but I'm going to hit so many other people for whom my message is not very interesting. And so the internet has taught, taught, taught us that we can tailor our marketing pitches to very narrow niches. And while the per impression rate might be higher, um, it's, uh, the total dollars expended is much lower because it's very targeted. You can find those 125 and, and send out very targeted thought leadership, um, very targeted, uh, marketing impressions to those people. So I think of that as narrow casting. figure out what's the small niche. Look, if I, if I do work for four mining companies and I have revenues of $4 million, so a million dollars a piece. Um, and there are 125 CFOs of mining companies I'd like to work with. Uh, if I could work with four more of those 125, I could double my revenues to $8 million. Um, so we're playing on a very different scale. It's a, it's a narrow scale, not a broad scale. We're not trying to sell a $1 keychain to 45 million people. We're trying to sell a million-dollar engagement to a CFO.
0: Yeah. And that also implies uh, that, um, yeah, building relationships is really important. So it's it's really getting to know that, knowing whom to target, and, and then getting to know that person, adding value, and building a relationship um, over time. So the problem that I see with some consultancies I'm talking to, um, hmm. we start, of course, with um, who's your ideal client? So I'm asking them pretty broadly, who do you think is your ideal client? More often than I hope to hear that, the answer is the CEO of the tax company. So like the Dow Jones. I want to talk to these. And I says, really? Why those? Yeah, What kind of projects did you do in the past? And so on and so forth. So how would you take someone by the hand who in my point of view, doesn't have a clear picture yet on whom they really want to target. They want to go after something that is prestigious, but it's not what they should do. So what kind of questions do you ask and how do you guide those people towards the right target group for them?
1: It's a great question. It's the question. Because I think when we engage with clients, it's this question of what is the narrow cohort that they should go after that they can't answer And because they can't answer this question or they can't agree amongst the partners um, on what the highest priority is, they never get anything done. And so it is the central question that you're asking. And so I think the first place I ask is, um, what are two projects or three projects you've done over the last couple of years that you thought you did a really good job for the client on? Um, And so that gets us to case studies. Uh, where have you transformed? So you might say 80% of our business is, is working, uh, doing taxes for car dealerships, but we hate doing taxes for car dealerships because it's a commodity and there are a lot of people that do it. Um, but we did do two uh, engagements with Indian cas- casinos in the United States. Um, and we thought we did a really nice job. We were really helpful to them. And uh, they really appreciated our specialized knowledge around gaming. Um, so that's a case where you've done a really great job and you feel differentiated. Um, so why not just ask yourself how many uh uh, India, Indian casinos are there in North America, and begin to call on them with that specialized case study of change that you were able to affect. So that's the first piece of advice. The second piece of advice I, I would give is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so by that I mean, um, if you have conflict in your, in your practice amongst partners, don't limit yourself to one. As, say to yourself. What are the three to five uh, uh, places we think we've made a real difference and have a right to do more work because we did such great differentiated work? And so the person in cybersecurity can say, I did a great job with law firms, mid sized law firms. And the person in HR can say, "Um, I did a great job finding uh, diversity and inclusion officers in. you know mid-size um, manufacturing companies and everyone can kind of put put up their you know one or two nominees then force rank them and say well okay so what what's the in terms of size of the market compellingness of our differentiation and uh potential uh ability to charge margin uh in, in the particular client wh- what let's force rank them one, two, three, four, five. And it's not that we're not going to do all five, but let's start with the one that we said was number one. And then we'll go to number two and then we'll go to number three. So leading them through an exercise of prioritization is really important. And you'll always get these people that go, so you ask sort of two different questions. You'll get people that go, uh, but I want to work for PepsiCo. I want to work for Coca-Cola. And, uh, and, and, you know, my view is you earn the right to do that over time. Um, and the way people get into Coca-Cola is not that they pitch the CEO of Coca-Cola and they are so blindingly compelling that the CEO goes, oh, silly me, I should have hired you a long time ago and our cans should all be blue, not red, uh, yeah. because you say they should be blue. The way people get into Coca-Cola is that they work for a mid-sized beverage company, and the person that they work for gets promoted to be CMO, and then that person gets recruited by Coca-Cola to run their monster drink division, and they bring you along. So, you know, earn the right to do the work that is prestigious over time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it a lot. Because it's uh, it's also realistic, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I mm. mean, I've never seen that happening. but it just described: someone pitches a, a CEO of a big company, and they, I mean, if they don't have any access, um, that that will never happen. And, it's, and it's by the TV, way, I think yeah? that does
1: it to us. It's like, uh, yeah, you know, the television yeah, yeah. show Mad Men. Like we're gonna yeah. all get dressed up, and we're gonna go in, and we're gonna make the pitch, and our fortunes will be decided one way or the another. These are very consequential decisions that executives are making, and they they make them with people that they've worked with before and that mm. they trust and then have an established reputation of uh, of being successful in what they do. They don't take wild risks with an unknown company that says the Coca-Cola can should be blue. never happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah and by the way,
0: if you are successful with all these mid-sized companies that you can help, you might not even need these big companies anymore, and but you might might it might be much easier to to get those at the end. But it's not necessary to have these big brand names to build a nice consultancy or boutique consultancy. Uh, you can still make a really really a big company out of that if you focus on that. And that's maybe a fallacy where people think, oh, but then I only have like 200 people to talk to. I cannot be the I mean, that's too few. It it doesn't work. Yeah, they they feel at least like this. So uh, my question now is. Uh, where does your company come in? So, like, what what do you do to help uh, such a boutique
1: consultancy um, start winning the right way? So we do a full range of services from this kind of segmentation consultancy mm-hmm. um, to uh, to um, kind of strategic and tactical planning for companies. But mm-hmm. and, and so. Most consultancies have two forms of new revenues, existing clients and new clients. Um, and typically, in, in a mature consultancy, 70% of their new year-over-year revenues come from existing clients, and 30% come from new clients. So to, So far, we've been talking about new clients, new clients, new clients, but there's a huge part of what consultancies do that are that are established, which is expanding their remit, expanding their footprint within the client that they already serve. And so we do an awful lot of account planning uh, for clients. They already work for Coca-Cola, but they work for a very small distributor, bottling distributor in Atlanta. So they have a foothold, And uh, they know that this is a $20 billion company and they're trying to figure out how can we spread inside of Coca-Cola? We're doing good work over here. We set up a new website for them and they're very happy. So how can we spread? Or um, we did a nice website, but they don't know that we also drew uh, training or we also do events. How can we let them know that we have other services? So that's something that we do. An awful lot of what we do is is set up. Communion. Okay, can we stop for a second?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, because yeah. just one follow-up question there. On a, on a high level, if that's possible, what are the key steps you should do in order to be able to, um, to, to grow in an account where you have a foothold?
1: Yeah, so I, I mentioned sort of two dimensions, right? Mm-hmm. One is you can do more of the work that you're doing right now mm-hmm. in other divisions of the client And you can do other services for your current buyer in the client, or you could also do it for other divisions. Mm -hmm. So um, you can map that on a matrix, right? So one axis would be new services, and another axis would be new client divisions. Um, And you you can say, where are we playing right now? Well, we, we've got a, a green square in that matrix that is where we're now, we're, we're, we're offering this service to this division, another service to another division, but there'll be a bunch of white space, a bunch of white uh, cells that represent opportunities. So the next thing you do is ask yourself, what are our highest priorities? So... Going back to what do we have a right to sell? Where do we have case studies that are compelling? Where are we not just aspirational in Mm -hmm. in our offerings? We can rank those cells and say, you know what? Our top five opportunities are to do exactly what we're doing right now. Uh, You know, a website for the Atlanta bottling uh, plant for uh, another Bottling plant in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's our highest priority because we've got something we can show them. We've got a very strong reference. And we've heard that the CEO of the bottling plant in Atlanta is friends with the bottling plant CEO in D.C. So we can maybe get a reference. So that's our lowest hanging fruit. So Mm -hmm. we force rank all those squares and then we map out relationships and we ask ourselves, what are the relationships we need to? To sort of create in order to get introduced so could we ask the ceo of the bottling plant in atlanta at the next bottling convention to uh invite the dc bottling plant ceo to dinner with us would they be willing to do that we could all talk together about business and we could begin to establish a relationship we're not going to pitch them at that meeting but we're going to earn the right to say, you know what, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. in a month. I'd love to stop by and and see your operation. Bob in Atlanta says you do a wonderful job. And then you're you're engaging and you're beginning to sort of uh, hopefully engage in, and do work with that high priority matrix. So that's generally the way you do account planning.
0: Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Um, and you know why uh, you're really good in explaining things that might uh, might be complicated in in a structured way with a framework that someone can take away from this uh, conversation and directly execute. So right, uh, thanks good. a lot already for that. i I like it a lot. Um, it makes it much easier to think about account planning. Um, and then you already started something, but I interrupted you. Uh, you wanted no, to say something right. about communities.
1: So an awful lot of what we do is build communities of existing clients and, and targets. So if there are 200 executives that you want to get to know, so we'll go back to CFOs of mining companies. So I'm an accountant. I've done work for two mining companies. I've decided I want to get to know 200 other mining companies because I have a good story to tell, and I don't know how to reach them. Do I just pick up the phone and call them and say, Hi. I'm Tom. I'm your mining company tax person. You should call me. It's hard, right? It's scary. I don't want to do that. So, do I send out direct mail? How do I reach these people? So, what we found at Arthur Anderson and what we've been doing for 20 years is that we can invite uh, prospects to a community of peers that is a non-selling interaction, and they will find that valuable. And in that way, we can get to know them. So Mm -hmm. in this case, if our client was the accountant, we would say, great, you've got 200 CFOs you want to get to know in the mining sector. Let's set up a a mining CFO exchange and we'll have it meet virtually, uh, quarterly, in small groups of 12. And what we'll do on your behalf, the client, is call those people up and we'll say, uh, Sammy's standing up a a group of mining executive uh, CFOs uh, to talk about the changing regulatory environment, uh, the changing tax environment, and in general, to sort of talk with each other about best practices. They've hired us, Pi, as a third party. Uh, to keep it sort of professionally facilitated and uh, make sure it's not a selling thing. This is not a webinar. This is truly a community of best practices. But we're going to brand it as Sammy's group. And uh, you're going to be the host of the group, even though I facilitate. And what's going to happen over time is you, the client, are going to get to know all these executives and you're going to earn the right to stop by the next time you're in Toledo. Uh, or Toronto and, uh, and pay a visit to them. And it's going to be a warm relationship, not a cold call. And you're Mm -hmm. going to say, you know, you just bought that, that mining operation in Santiago. Um, How has uh, tax preparation gone in Chile for you? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, but we have an office in Chile and I've done a lot of work in Chile. I'd love to tell you what we've learned over 20 years of working in Chile about tax preparation. Um, mm-hmm. And the person goes, Oh, I didn't realize you were such an expert at Chilean taxes. Would you mind taking a look at what we do and just uh and maybe suggesting ways in which we we might improve the provision of our taxes there? Um, that's the way consulting gets sold. Uh so you do that and you come back and you say, I I suggest you do three things. One, two, three. One of them I can't do. You need to hire a lawyer for that, but here's a lawyer that I would recommend. You earn a lot of trust when you say to people, "I can't do that," um, but these two things I could do them for you. This would cost hundred thousand dollars. This would cost you two hundred thousand dollars. Here are examples of where I've done that before, and uh, and the change that I affected. Um, I'd love a shot at at uh, helping you out with this. That's the way consulting is sold. So we build communities of people that. Uh, are in that 200-person cohort that that consulting practices want to serve. Mm-hmm. So, we've done that for you know CFOs and chief security officers and uh, chief operating officers across many lots lots of different uh, sectors: manufacturing, finance, software, you name it. Uh, consulting firms have different. Subsets or cohorts they're trying to serve, and we we round them up. I'll give you an example. The best one. This is a fun example. I talked to a law firm. They're in Colorado, and uh, in Colorado, it's legal to buy and smoke marijuana, um, mm-hmm. and it's a farm state, and so they do a lot of commercial hemp uh, mm-hmm. production. But in the United States, uh, the the production of cannabis is while legal is uh it's illegal to go through the banking system mm-hmm. so it's an all cash business and it's fraught with legal peril so this law firm had done some work for some big hemp farms and some retail chains of marijuana clinics whatever shops and they'd gotten pretty good at it and then they had the good idea that they should do it in California and Oregon and Washington and Nevada Because in all those states, marijuana is legal as well. They go, we should have, we have a right to build our cannabis practice in those states. So they hired us to go create a group of general counsels, the chief legal officer of mid-sized cannabis companies in those four states so that they could get to know them. And they could begin to sort of share best practices and earn the right to go to San Diego to a midsize uh, uh, marijuana distributor and say, you know, we could help you with your banking problems. We've got 10 years in Colorado doing exactly this sort of work. Anyway, those are the sorts of things that we do.
0: Very nice. Do you know by heart maybe how many of these um, chief legal officers were, were there per state? Do you know that? Just, yeah, just so out of we, curiosity.
1: We ended up putting together uh, a group of about 45 of these out of a possible, I think, uh, pool of 100. We were Mm -hmm. successful at recruiting 45.
0: Wow, that is like a really good success rate. So it's 45%.
1: So I'm not pitching them. When I call them up and ask them to join, I'm not saying, do you want to go to a webinar and be sold to? Who wants to be sold to? No one. I'm saying- Exactly, yeah. The world is changing. How would you like to be in touch with people that have the same legal problems you have, Mm -hmm. um, but are in different geographies? To compare notes, um, you have a common enemy the federal government and taxing authorities and local authorities. How about you guys get together and talk about what's working and what's not? And they're like, I'm in. It's free, it's virtual, it's an hour, once a quarter. My true peers. So I always say to people, you don't need to hire us to do this. You should just do this. It's a good idea.
0: No, I love it. It's it's really nice because um, and and the numbers speak for you. So if you talk about cold outreach, usually you have like if you're good, between one and three percent reactions to your cold outreach. You are at forty-five percent, and over time, and and that's really good because in the beginning you said. Not everybody is willing to buy right now or has, has the need to buy something right now from you, but they get to know you. They start to trust you. You give them so much value that they're inclined to at least think about you also when they run solve this problem. So maybe you're not the only one, but you're in the in the mix of the top two or three vendors who get uh, to pitch in the end. And, and buying that right by providing a lot of value is amazing. And it's a, an, an amazing long-term strategy. So I, I have one, one thing that maybe some marketing people then say, hmm, you're just doing like an, an, an online event. Yeah. Why, why don't we fly those people out to, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest farm in the United States or Mexico or wherever. Uh, let's have a really fancy long weekend right, and let's but... spend some money on those people. Why, why don't we do that? Because I don't believe that those people just come
1: because I invite them to an online event. That's not enough. Yeah. So that's a great question. Marketers love to throw parties and the fancier the party, the better. Um, And so they're inclined to say, let's have a summit in London at a swell hotel and we'll spend a lot of money getting everybody all together. The way I think about it. So I have a son and a daughter, but my son's 22. He would never ask me for dating advice ever because I'm his father. But if he did, (laughs) if he did, I would have some advice, and the advice is that if you met a potential partner, that you should start slow. Um. So, in American uh, uh, airline magazines, there was an ad for a dating service that was called "It's Just Lunch." So, if you think about that, what they did is they paired people together. And they suggested that they go have lunch. So why lunch? So it's a very low consequence event. It's only an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. Generally, there's not alcohol. There's not a lot of social pressure. It's easy to say, I've got to go back to work. It's a way of just having an initial uh, interaction that might lead to a second date, which is, hey, would you be interested in having a drink after work on Friday? Which might lead to another Invitation We should have dinner next week, which might over time lead to uh, how would you like to go to Cabo San Lucas in Baja Mexico for a week vacation? That's the normal trajectory of a relationship, but so you if don't directly son, go
0: to the week long vacation, you start with little baby steps, <laughs>
1: right? If if my son Saw a young woman that he that he fancied and said, how would you like to go to Cabo for a week? She'd be like, who are you? It's too much. Right. And so uh, I think we counsel our clients. Yes. A big event in London would be wonderful where you all have you see wonderful speakers. You spend all day, day after day together. You break bread at night. You drink fine wine. You really get to know each other. That's a wonderful thing. That's Cabo San Lucas. You have to earn the right to get there. You have to climb up the relationship ladder. So start with something that's very easy for someone to say yes to. How would you like to join a community of your peers, um, your true peers, so same size company, same function, in a virtual setting for one hour? We'll pre-interview you beforehand to make sure that the topic or the conversation fits your questions and your needs it'll be professionally facilitated it's free to you if everything i just said to you is not true hang up in the middle of the call and disappear no commitment at all here that's how you get 45 percent. you invite people to london and you get one percent yeah so why do you think people attend that's a great question also I used to think that people were eager to learn best practices from each other. Executives were greedy to know what each other were doing. I think after 20 years, I start to think that people are scared. People, they've never had the job they have right now. I was an attorney at a law firm and suddenly my friend said, do you want to be the general counselor of a cannabis company? Um, And I'm brand new to that job. And I want to make sure that I'm not missing something, that everybody else in my ecosystem is registering a 5069 with the government in British Columbia, and I've never even heard of Form 5069. I want to make sure that I'm not missing something that will get me fired or send me to jail. And so by gathering together with my peers and hearing what they're doing, I can I can benchmark what I'm doing and locate myself in the universe of my peers and realize, okay, I'm safe. I can keep doing what I'm doing here. Uh, but they, they're eager to do it. Mm-hmm. It's using, you're using the power of the attraction of a peer group. You're harnessing that power for your desire to drive business development. You're, it's a two-step process, not a one-step process. I'm not asking you for a sale. I'm using the power of peer groups to create a relationship, after which then I can ask for a sale over time.
0: And I think it's a fair exchange because because you provide real value. So they get to these meetings, uh, and once they get out of these meetings, they have something. They have connections to their peers. They maybe learn something. Um, and funny enough, we we also started this uh, with with our company. Um, Doing physical meetups, so I invited um, like fifteen partners and managing directors of consultancies to a small daily, just standing tables, some some drinks and and some finger food, and I always get out of. I usually it's a mix of existing clients and some people I I never talk to. We just invite them on LinkedIn and they come, and I usually get out of these meetups without selling anything. But I usually have at least two or three follow up meetings with people that say, hmm. That's interesting what you're generally doing. And I talked to one of your customers and they seem to be really happy. Uh, let, let's have a chat. Yeah, let's have a chat. And this is how, and, and these, when, when I look at those leads, they're also converting much faster uh, than the leads that come through other channels. I assume because they have more trust. They saw peers that work with you. They, they see that you can gather people that, uh, that that are on their same level, which is usually not easy. So they put in more trust in what you do.
1: Exactly. You become a peer. You are co-creating the future with them. Um, You are the bee that is cross-pollinating best practices across an industry. It's -hmm. not that you're smarter than anyone else. It's that you're telling a, a group of executives, I care more about sales and marketing in mid-sized consulting firms in this geography than anyone else does. There are other smart people but they just care about other things. I care about you and this particular problem that you're facing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so, interesting Sammy, yeah. I'll just say one thing. When we're selling a laptop, we can talk about the features and attributes. It's really fast. It's got lots of pixels. It's uh Uh, the screen size is quite large. It's, it's light. We can talk about the features and attributes. When we talk about expert services, we can't talk about it. So can you imagine going down the road in the United States and seeing a billboard on the highway that says, Tom is the smartest attorney in all of Montana. His scores, uh, getting into law school were higher than anyone else's. It's sort of laughable. Uh, We don't talk about, uh, you you can't talk about um, expert services. You have to demonstrate expert services. So when you're in a community like this and you're asking interesting questions of the cohort and you're saying, you know, it's interesting. I had a client that, that, Face that same problem, and here's what they did. It's important not to use the I word. I think this, I think that, I think you should do that. That's way less compelling than, you know, in 20 years, I've had three clients that face the same problem. Yes. And here's what they did one, two, three. Now you're demonstrating your expertise, and that is very compelling.
0: I love it. I'm going to definitely use that one. So, (laughs) can you, can you? Guide us through the agenda for for one of these virtual meetings. So one hour long. I understood twelve people invited. Once a quarter per per person, so to say, or per per um, target group that is local. Um, so if I were attending, what 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 could I expect?
1: So what we do. This is our secret, which I'll gladly give you. Is we interview everybody beforehand for twenty minutes. So we call them up on the phone. All the executives. And we say, what are your biggest challenges right now? So think about that. That helps me structure a conversation around what they care about. But it's also the start of the consultative sale, right? Because you, as a consultant, are in the business of solving problems. And you just ask them, what are their three biggest problems? And they said, we just bought a company and I'm trying to integrate the two websites. Uh, my field salesperson just quit. uh, And I need to figure out whether this is a time to change our strategy on sales, or just hire another person. And, uh, you know, my, my third problem is that uh, my boss wants to go on a wants to publish a book, and, uh, and generate thought leadership, and I don't know how to do that for, for him. So Having interviewed everybody beforehand, we can say, Sammy had an interesting problem that he wanted to sort of pose to the group. I'm the facilitator now. He said his boss is uh, wants to publish a book, and he doesn't have a ton of experience on that. Sammy, maybe you could put that in your own words and pose a question to the group. So then you go, yeah, my boss wants to publish a book, and I don't know how to do it. Has anyone ever done that before? And someone will will go, you know, actually, I used to work for a book publisher, and here's how it works. Um, And you start the conversation that way. But those pre-interviews, when I'm spending one-on-one time with you, are actually more valuable to you, the consultant, than the interactions. Because it's in the one-on-one meeting where I'm finding out your idiosyncratic challenges, the, the particular problems that you're facing that maybe I could help you with
0: hmm. I love it. And um, I don't know if you remember, but I asked you the same question or pre-interview. <laughs> um, one thing you mentioned, and, and that's just something I also want to highlight. Um, it's like the, I would also say it's a kind of mindset that you, that probably helps you. And you can correct me if I get it wrong, because you said, okay, if, if you find out these three problems, yeah, and you, you know, even maybe you are not the right one to save any of those, yeah. Uh, but you help them to get connected to a person that can help, to a company that can help, or whatnot. Uh, that already gives you uh, the um, re-access to that person whenever you want to. Or what also happens to me now, from time to time, people lose jobs and and they and, and they tell me, and I know people who could provide them with jobs because I'm connected in that industry now. So it's even something where you can. Um, Help someone on a really personal problem, like really personal. Um, and once you do that, and I did that once. We are just a young company, so we, not a lot of history. But I, I, I helped someone get in touch with a, a couple of really interesting companies, and they, they found a job. And now, I mean, they, he's using our service and and software now. Um, also because we solve a problem, but very likely also because we helped him um, solving a really big problem um do how do you see this and do you see this
1: happen um more often or or less often? we invested in a technology that allows us to know when someone changes jobs by way of linkedin
0: mm-hmm.
1: so if any of our clients changes their job or loses their job, we see that as a huge opportunity just as what you said so um let's say you get promoted you get hired away by a different firm we work for you at at Hitachi, and you get hired by IBM. Well, we want to go work at IBM, uh, so we're going to call you up and say, "Sammy, you already know that we do good work, and you already trust us. We should just do what we did before in IBM. This will be a quick win for you." and uh, And you'll go, "Yeah, you're right. Let me see if I can get budget for that." Or they get fired, and when you get fired. I've been fired. When you get fired, the day after you get fired, you stop getting emails and you the phone stops ringing and it gets very quiet. So we call people two or three days later and say, hey, is there a way in which we could help you? We know a lot of people in the industry. Can you send me your CV? We would like to distribute it on your behalf. If you do that, they're friends for life. Right. Because you've shown that you care about them. You're going to vote in their interests. Uh, yeah. It's a one. It's, I hate to say it, but other people's misfortune is a wonderful opportunity to sort of solidify a relationship with people.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a fair exchange. You provide value, you um, maybe even provide a job. So I think it's absolutely fair because you didn't create the problem and you ha- you're there to solve Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you mentioned something else um that um, basically you um, you don't have to be a super smart person to collect uh, interesting uh, content and ideas from from the groups that you create and i know that you also wrote books two books even um so um let me start before we dive into your books um usually consultants have the notion of thinking that they know everything yeah because they're taught to Be like confident because if you're in front of a CEO and you say, I don't have an answer, you you think at least you're out. Um, What is your take
1: on that? So I don't think that's true. I think that's hubris. I think we play different roles in the kind of ecosystem of commerce. So if you're an executive and I'm a consultant, you know more than I do about your business because you've been doing it for 10 years. So, you're an expert at your business. I have the advantage of seeing lots of businesses. Uh, so, I have a wide perspective. You have a deep perspective. The way I think good consultants uh, agree, uh, uh, sort of engagements happen, is when you and I agree to create something together inside of your company based on your deep experience. And my broad experience, we both have expertise we bring to the table and together we co-create something that moves the needle, that, that drives positive change in your organization. So I think it's very important to sort of get off our high horses and think, I, as the consultant, have all the answers. I have half of the puzzle. You have the other half. Together, if we get along really well and we're thinking sort of creatively, we can do some really special things together. Um, The other thing is, you know, the world is changing constantly. New laws, new market forces, interest rates are going up, interest rates are going down. War flares up here. There's stress in Taiwan. Chips are under, you know, the, the supply chain for chips might be under pressure. There's a lot of things that are happening every single day and when we're executives we're it's like we're driving through this la- landscape that keeps coming at us anew so the notion that one person ca- knows the future and can tell you exactly what the landscape's going to look like is not really true i think what's a better image is you're the executive and you're driving through this landscape of change and i'm your co-pilot and i'm looking at a map that allows me to have a broader perspective. And I've got a lot of experience. I've driven this road before through similar landscapes, but not this one, and I can give you tips. Careful, we're coming up to a steep you know, decline here or there's a turn coming up. Uh, anyway, I think a certain amount of humility really helps the consultant. But this notion that I should do all the talking as the consultant, because I'm the answer man. Ask me anything, and I've got the answer. Is a form of hubris, notwithstanding mm-hmm. what I'm doing right now with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, basically uh, you're providing value, uh, so I'm the one asking. Uh, it's yeah. absolutely fair game here. Um, and what you what you also said the the cross pollination part, where because you're not co co-pilot, piloting co piloting on on one plane, you're co piloting on on and. 50 planes. Yeah. And you know exactly what the other ones are doing to go through this crisis. And so um, you learn from other experts and basically summarize the learnings. um, And then through this can provide value. And now we're coming to uh, your books because I'm curious, uh, was this how you like, why did you even consider writing a book? Um, How did you do it? And what outcome did you expect? And then have uh, um, ex-post, so to say.
1: Yeah, so I came into this firm, I mentioned I I bought this firm when it was a million dollars, when it was fairly small. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was interested in how do you grow a professional services firm? How do you grow a consulting firm? And I had come from a different industry, from private equity, Mm -hmm. and before that from baking. And uh, so I didn't know anything about Consulting, or how how you do business development. I had written a book before about baking. And, uh, <laughs> what, what what wait wait what's the title? Bread and butter.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Can you can you buy it online? Of course you can.
1: Yeah, it's on you Amazon. Put it
0: into the show notes. That's amazing. Okay, go on, please, Tom. <laughs> okay.
1: So uh I knew that when you're writing a book, you have permission to do what you're doing, which is to ask a lot of people questions. And learn. So I said, I'm going to ask rainmakers in expert service firms and consulting firms how do they sell? Um, I'm going to ask a hundred of them that, and then I'm going to teach myself uh, how to sell and grow our firm. And so I asked a hundred different rainmakers, and then I just sort of uh, boiled it down and said, you know, there there's seven different elements to uh, bringing on new clients. And it was useful to people. And so then I was asked to write a second book. The first book is called How Clients Buy. And it answers the question, how do consultants get new clients? Under what conditions do clients choose to pay you, Sammy, money to help them? That's the question. The second book asks the other half of the sales question, which is once you have uh, a foothold in a client, you're doing work for a client. How do you expand your your footprint there? How do you do more work? And that book is called Never Say Sell. Um, mm-hmm. So how clients buy and never say sell, new clients, existing clients, and account management. Those mm-hmm. are the two books. And and like I said, I'm not a smart person. I just, this, this is what, you know, I, I interviewed the CEO of McKinsey on down everybody across the industry that's smart about this and i tried to distill what the the best practices uh, are right now so i want to i want to tie this back to what we we're just saying sammy because do you remember we we're just talking about the the consultant doesn't have to be the answer man they have to be the bee that cross-pollinates best practices mm-hmm. so these books are an effort it, you can call it thought leadership, but I think of it as a contribution. It's my contribution to the conversation around consulting and business development. And my contribution is not some brilliance that comes out of my mind, but it's it's all the best practices. It's what I've learned by asking lots of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that broad perspective that you can then, as the client, apply in your deep experience with your company. So Mm -hmm. there's a recursive element here. You can see I'm drinking my own medicine, if you will. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I would, that's what all consultants should do is once they, they, they create, once they understand what that cohort is, the 200 people that they want to serve, they should interview them all and then begin to publish articles that talk about here's what smart people in our industry do when faced with this problem or this problem or this problem and you might think well you're not positioning yourself as an expert but when you position yourself as that b cross-pollinating best practices it redounds to your credit
0: Mm -hmm. i like it a lot and you break it down Um... In, in a nice way so that you don't have to write a book in total. You can maybe start with articles and over time you have like a master amount of, of, uh, or you covered so many topics, um, that you, you can put that together as a book, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, how did you like, what are the high level steps to, to like form? I done all the interviews to I have a book that I can publish.
1: So I published a book before, right? So this is my third book. Never Say Sell so, was my third book. So, I, so you're I an expert the now. Yeah, right. I'm an expert now. And so in the United States, the way in which you publish a, a nonfiction book is you write a proposal. Mm-hmm. You don't have to write the book first. Um, and the proposal typically has a sample chapter or two and then an outline. So I proposed an outline. I proposed the question how do clients buy? How do consultants get new, uh, clients? And I proposed what I would do, which was go interview a hundred people. And, uh, I proposed what I thought was going to be the recipe. It turned out it was wrong. Um, and then there's a form that this is, this is done. You can buy a book, how to write a book proposal. And, uh, you, you, you have to, write all the competing titles you have to write your biography you have to demonstrate that you probably have the ability to sell 5000 books before a mainstream publisher will publish it um and then you in this country you get an agent um and the agent then represents your proposal to publishing houses which decide to buy it or not and uh because i'd written a book before that had done well i had an audience and uh, that enabled a book publisher to feel like they could sell 5,000 books with me. Um, it's just a game. And, you, you know, you have to learn the game.
0: Mm-hmm. Very yeah. good. Very nice. Thanks for that. Um, now, um, let's switch to a totally different topic. Uh, you yeah. told me that you promoted your um, CEO to um, chief product officer. Um, yes. So President slash chief product officer.
1: Why? So in in our consultancy, we have a vein like in in the sense that a mountain might have a vein of gold in it, uh, a a, a sort of a deposit of gold. And that gold for us is building communities of clients and uh, prospects on behalf of practices and expert services firms. We've been doing that for 20 years. We've been growing quickly every year. We're successful. We have a, a reputation for excellence in it. Um, it continues to feed our families. It's, a, it's gold. But there's a limit to that uh, deposit. There just intellectually is a limit. Uh, if we're a 15 or $20 million company, It's we can't be a probably a hundred million dollar company just doing that. Mm -hmm. We have to find other service lines. And so I took our most valuable person, our president, and I, I took all of his work off of him. And I said, I want you. He's very creative. I want you to sort of gather good ideas about other service lines and conduct a series of experiments with our resources to see if we can't discover another deposit of gold um, because we, we're we going to need, you know, my, my goal now. Initially, when I first came onto this company, we had one big client and I was like, I want five big clients. So if one of them disappears, uh, you know, we made roughly 20% EBITDA. If one of them disappears, I don't have to fire anybody because we just, uh, one of our clients represents our profit for that year. We just won't have profit that year. Uh, now my goal is to have three service lines, each of $20 million a piece. And so I want him, it's, you can't just invent a service line in your head. You have to try it and see whether or not clients find that interesting. So we interviewed all our clients and we asked them, what's a problem that needs solving? What, what are you pulling your hair out about? What would you write? any amount of money to solve in your business. And they gave us a lot of feedback. And then we started design experiments. And so Jacob, our president, is now our sort of chief product officer. And I think of him as the person that is inventing the next $40 million of revenues for us.
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you know, I haven't seen that before in the consultancy because usually they're all stuck in, I would say, the old way of how things worked. So you you become uh, you start as a consultancy, you become a manager, you become a partner or senior partner or managing director. Uh, and then uh, well you you mostly sell projects because it directly impacts the money that you earn because you get a bonus. So you're solely focused on that. And um, somehow they forget that this is like like a company. So you can you can create these kind of positions if you wanted to, and they would very likely, help you achieve great things because some companies try to solve it by saying, okay, um, Tom, you just do it as a side project. Yeah. So your job is now do everything that you did up to now, but on top you, you're going to
1: invent new product lines. And and why didn't you do that? Yeah. it's beca- Well, so look, we there's the urgent and the important, and the urgent is serving clients. Um, and growing the base of business and the important is inventing the future and we never get to the important we especially if we want to have a life yes. and we want to not work all the time so uh, that's the first reason a very a, a business mentor of mine dave bayless said to me that innovation occurs when you create skunk works so you You separate a team of people out away from the company, oftentimes in a different geography, and you give them nothing but resources and time. And you don't ask for accountability reports. You just say, work for the next two years and let's tune in in two years. So we couldn't quite do that. We don't quite have the scale to do that. But I did have the scale enough to say, I'm going to strip all of the day to day responsibilities, client responsibilities off of and, and managerial responsibilities off of this person's desk so that they just have one thing that he and I talk about, which is the future. Um, mm-hmm. and he and I are very good friends and we talk all the time now about the future. We've created that as a priority. And then we've done that for about a year now, and I'm pretty excited about what we've begun to discover. So our the work that we're doing with account planning is, is a growing out of this. The kind wow, of direct segmentation work that we're doing has grown out of this um, out of this effort anyway so it's uh look you are growing a, you want I mean most people want to grow a company they don't want to just work in the company they want to work on the company I think yeah. that's what Michael Gerber says and uh, so I'm trying to work on the company and uh, create its future sources of revenues not just in the company doing the work doing the work for clients
0: yeah and it's a nice way on how you put it. And if you look at it, even uh, f- from outside, maybe if you're 20 partners and you take away one partner, you could say, worst case, you lose 1 20th of your revenue. Wouldn't, will not happen because you hand over, but worst case, you lose everyone because they're so attached to Tom. Yeah. But if you look at it uh, midterm, this is like um, the opportunity to create like totally new business line that, that can double, triple, quadruple your whole company value and and revenue, so to say. So um, it's an easy bet in my point of view. Um, I just think that most partners of consultancies are so stuck in doing the day-to-day job, which is pretty stressful, that they they don't take the chance to take a step back and say, okay, how can we build the machine better and not be
1: stuck in the machine? Uh, So how you put it was uh, really nice. So it's interesting. So I'm 60 years old, right? I'm older than you are. And I and my children are now out of university. And I start to think maybe I want to do something else in my old age. I did a lot of work in Africa as a young person. And I think I'd like to do some work there in my older age, in my last third of my life, which is to say that I want to retire at some point. So that begs the question have we built equity value mm-hmm. in the consultancy? Could we sell the consultancy? to the next generation of leaders in the consultancy? Or is it just a collection of my relationships with clients and the expertise that I give them? And if I disappear, there's nothing left of the company. Well, I'm very focused, and I think most founders are, on creating equity value that could be sold um, in excess of just what their time is to rent it by the hour. Yep. Makes absolute
0: sense. So, um, And this is the difference between a lifestyle business where you want to be the king and feel good about being the king and the rainmaker, and a proper business where you try to build a machine and you are not even part of the equation if you do the really good job um, in the end. Um, So we're already at the end of our conversation. um, And I have three rapid fire questions for you, Tom. Are you ready? I am ready. Perfect. What do you do to keep body and mind fit and sharp?
1: I try and work out four days a week, and I love working out in the morning. Win Hoff says, win the morning, win the day. And so uh, I always tell myself, because it hurts sometimes in the morning, but if I win the morning, I win the day. And then I meditate every day for 20 minutes. Those Mm -hmm. are two things. What kind of workout do you do? Uh, You know, a combination of cardio and weights.
0: Mm-hmm. Really yeah. nice. And do, do you also do these Wim Hof uh,
1: breathing exercises? Uh, no, I don't. I don't know those exercises.
0: Yeah, because I just know this guy. Um, I, if it's the correct person that I imagine, that's a guy who can basically um, go into a nice bath and stay there for an hour without getting correct. like. Yeah. 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 He's guy. doing that with uh, correct breathing methods, uh, which is mm. pretty interesting. I never tried it, but maybe you can look it up. It could be quite okay. interesting.
1: It always seemed chilly to me. And then yeah. my wife and I, you know, we live in an outdoor <laughs> paradise, so we always try and go hiking or biking. Nice. We, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Um, Look, I feel like I'll just be very clear about this. I believe that our business is in service of our lives, mm-hmm. that we're not in service of the business's life. I tell that to everybody that works here. We mm-hmm. This business is not worth doing if it enslaves us. It, it is here to make our lives better. Uh, and so we work very hard to have, you know, a limited amount of time we work at, at the office and um, and to give ourselves the opportunity to enjoy the other parts of our lives.
0: Um, that's something you, you definitely should communicate to anyone uh, searching for a job and if you want to hire, because I, I don't see many consultancy leaders doing that in practice, Uh, even saying that, not many, but even executing that themselves. I see too many work too hard, where I think it's not about the time that you put in, it's about doing the right thing the right way. And if you think about it, you can probably achieve more by doing a little bit less and enjoy life, exactly like you said. So I really appreciate what you just said. Um, Do you have a favorite business book?
1: You know, I really like the book Stories That Stick. much of communication, sales, leadership of people, uh, is storytelling. So smart people oftentimes speak in abstractions. I'm doing that right now. But it's much more powerful to say, once a month, uh, we gather together as a team. I stand up in front of the team, and I usually tell a story. And I draw a sort of moral out of that and ask a question based on that story. Human beings consume and learn through stories. And uh, that's why people that are consultants and have been consultants for a long time tend to be better salespeople because they have stories. You know, that reminds me, what you're doing right now reminds me of a client I had in Texas and they faced a choice and uh, it was a difficult choice. And they would, you know, the person making the choice would lose their job if they made the wrong choice. Um and here's how they thought about the problem. And in the end, this is the choice that they made. Um, that is always better than you should do this. I think you should do one, two, three. Um, so I like that book, Stories That Stick.
0: Thanks a lot. We also put it into the show notes, besides of course, your books. Um, and who should be our next podcast guest and why?
1: So that's a great question. I really like this woman, Deborah Farone. She has just been elected into the U.S. Legal Marketing Hall of Fame. And I think she thinks about legal marketing, which is a subset of what we're talking about, expert service marketing, in, a, in an original and, and and compelling way. So wow. I would recommend her. I, I would really recommend Dave Bayless. Dave Bayless is a former venture capitalist that spends a lot of time thinking about how human beings learn from networks and communities and how um, how they can create communities to drive certain outcomes. Like what are the characteristics that drive different outcomes? And he's a student of that kind of network theory. And I find him very, very interesting. I learn from him every time I, I I talk with him.
0: Mm-hmm. I try to get in touch with those people. Definitely. Um, Happy and to now you, ah, that would be perfect even if you, if you can do that. That would be really nice, Tom. Um, and now you can directly address our audience. Um, is there anything we can help you with?
1: Uh, well, um, I, you know, I'd love to talk with you. Um, and I'd love to have our team... Uh, Learn more about your particular challenges so that we can get smarter about how we help firms like yours. Um, it's easy to get a hold of us. We're at www.profitableideas.com. with um, an You can get these books, How Clients Buy, Never Say Sell, on Amazon. Um, my email is tmcmakinprofitableideas.com. It's very easy to get a hold of me. Um, you know I, I'm not shy some some consultants are shy about putting their name and their number out there which always seems strange to me because mm-hmm. look uh, uh, our business is to help consultants make new friends um and we want to make new friends and we want to be helpful to the people that we we talk with because life is short and the world is small and uh, we have to help each other out to sort of muscle our way forward so So good luck to everybody as we all try and figure out this common challenge we have, which is how to build a bridge from our experience and our expertise to the people that would most benefit from that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. So please reach out to Tom and uh, McMackin is um, M-C-M-A-K-I-N. So T and then McMackin. Um, And and then you're going to also, if you probably want to find him on LinkedIn, I also found you on LinkedIn. So uh, Tom McMackin, you can also find him on LinkedIn. Uh, It was a true pleasure to have you on our show. um, And I definitely took away a lot of learnings again that I can directly implement. And I'm sure other people will do as well.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode. Do you want to win big whale clients, find new employees and become a renowned thought leader in your field? So can help simply schedule a strategy call with our host, Sammy Gebele. Get in touch on LinkedIn or via so You can also find all contact details in our show notes. Thanks and see you next time.